times a week do you have a glass of wine? How often do you talk about wine? If you're Parisian, probably quite frequently. For me, it wasn't something I indulged with any regularity until I was researching and writing my book and finally discovered what I enjoyed drinking and knew what sorts of questions to ask. For wine writer, James Beard Award winner, and author John Bonnet, it's an abiding preoccupation. On this episode of The New Paris, we'll be speaking to him about his new book, The New Wine Rules, the wine scene in Paris, and what it's like being in the wine world today. Welcome, John. Thank you for joining yeah, us. Thank, thank you guys so here. much. This is fun. Um, this seems like a really timely moment to talk to you because it's November, which means it's this Beaujolais moment in France, um, which is obviously a historical thing that's celebrated in this city with a lot of fanfare. Maybe you can tell us about that tradition and because a lot of our listeners might not know about it and sure. what's involved. And also, I know it's a young wine. The little that I do know of wine, I know that Beaujolais is a young wine and we're kind of taught that that's a bad thing, true or sure. false. Uh, <laughs> uh, a an easy question with a complicated answer. Uh, and the thing is that it's 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 in Paris, but you see that one, it's it's all over France. You of see course. it in Lyon, uh, having just gotten back from a couple of weeks in the Southern Rhone. You see that uh, that uh, they're they're selling uh, Coteron uh, Primeur. Uh, as well, so um, which more or less tastes like a slightly more alcoholic uh, Beaujolais Nouveau, uh, and and you see it in the U.S. as well that that finally uh, after me ranting for many years <laughs> that you shouldn't probably put cheap Beaujolais on an airplane and ship it off seven thousand miles uh, that people are actually making their own premier wines in the U.S. Maybe can um, you tell, tell and, us what premier uh, wine is? Yeah, so, so it's it's uh, it's it's just. Very simply, it's the first wine of the vintage, and traditionally it's made um, – the, the, the winemaking is a little more variable. It used to be that they would always add yeast to ensure that they would get a fermentation that was done by mid-November, uh, which is when the premiere was 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 – typically released. Um, now there's people who are trying to do it a little bit more uh, naturally and just to let it go through. Uh, it, it almost by definition is kind of an unfinished wine. Okay. Uh, it's it's fermented. It, there's The sugar has moved to alcohol. But beyond that, uh, it's it hasn't really spent any time aging, not even in the sort of, you know, studious, fancy way. But just, I mean, it's really kind of like stuff's done, goes into a bottle, goes out the door. Uh, and that's, um, I mean, traditionally it was meant to celebrate uh, the end of harvest and literally be kind of a, a, a memento, a token uh, of the harvest just done. Uh, that meant that you actually had wine, that you'd gotten grapes off the vine and you'd made it into something. Uh, and uh, it was it was often put on barges and shipped uh, up or down the Seine, uh, if it was Beaujolais, uh, to Lyon or ultimately to Paris. Um, and uh, it was... It was a very straightforward harvest tradition, uh, as there are many. Uh, and then about 45, 50 years ago, uh, it, uh, it really began to morph, uh, thanks in no small part to the Dubuff family uh, in Beaujolais, into this kind of – into this global marketing behemoth uh, that, ah. became, that became a way to take what, what, what's a 
completely practical and, and legitimate and smart French tradition. Uh, if you're in Paris, of course you want to know that the harvest is completed and you'll have wine. And if you're a bistro, you get your Beaujolais from whoever you're getting your cask of Beaujolais from traditionally. Uh, and you have something to drink and you have a party and, you know, you, you've got enough food and wine for the next year, hopefully. Uh, but uh, that somehow morphed into this thing where, you know, these, these garish bottles would show up air freighted uh, more often than not to all corners of the globe. And you would see it uh, all over the U.S. at the moment when the uh, when Americans of a, a prior generation were a little bit fixated on all things French. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this Isn't idea that still of, true? <laughs> it, well, it's interesting. It, that's that's a that's a whole other topic. It's right. sort of it's sort of it's sort of dipped for a while, and now it's now it's interesting how much it's come back. But um, talking about, I mean, Julia Child that being the first part, but that sort of late 60s through the 80s where um, all things French suddenly became super interesting. Uh, and this was a way to copy a very French tradition, uh, even though it practically made no sense. It was literally taking it out of its context and putting it somewhere else. And then you saw it in Japan. You saw it all over the world. Because it's a very, like, localized kind of celebration. Yeah, in a way. I mean, I mean, it's it's literally sort of, I mean, it is, it is the quintessence of the French agronomic tradition. Yeah. It is this thing that you grow and you make and you successfully make it into wine and then you all celebrate that you've done it. Uh, and then you, you know, you have kind of hangers on somehow um, all over the world who want to, who want to grab onto that in their hometown. And I mean, that was quaint maybe in the seventies or eighties. And until you started to think about just the practical matter of this kind of, in a, you know, impractically uh, appropriating a tradition. But, but the fact that it's, new, right? Because, I mean, you look at some, there's a a certain set of the French population who will say, ew, I would never drink Beaujolais Nouveau. But yet you see at the same time, this whole collective of people who celebrate it as though it's the best thing you're ever going to drink. So why, you know, why this division? And, And like Alice was saying, like, is this something that we, that, you know, wine, people in the wine industry would encourage people to drink, or is it purely marketing? Is there elitism around the the, the youth? <laughs> there's 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 reverse elitism. Maybe. Okay. Uh, so so yeah, I mean, there's there's people who don't want to drink it because they think that it's it's. I don't. I don't even understand why, aside from the fact that, yeah, it does, it's it's not very expensive, and it's you know, it's it's this kind of populist tradition that doesn't represent for them the the grandeur of wine, which they're you know. Whatever, <laughs> uh, but 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 at the same time, you know, you also have to be um, a little bit uh, forthright in the fact that you know, Primer wines are not very good. They're you know, they're kind of fruity. They're very primary, literally, right. and, and they they just don't taste like much. And like I said, I mean, you know, you can taste one from the Rhone made of Grenache that tastes almost exactly like one. Uh, from Beaujolais made of Gamay because all you really are tasting are these kind of, you know, primary fermentative aromas that just sort of taste like wine that's done fermenting. Uh, and so it's, I mean, it's a nice tradition. It's it's enjoyable to see, but it's also um, the, the, the flip side that you see when people go crazy over and they think it's wonderful. You, At some point, I have to question how much they're 
really enjoying it uh, versus how much they're enjoying the spectacle. And if they're really enjoying <laughs> yeah. it, I I do have to wonder <laughs> what their what their wine goals are. Okay. Right. So well, it's, it's definitely not a collector's wine anyway. No, it's no. something to drink in the moment and it, it can of... be good six or eight months later. Okay. Actually, if it's you know if it hasn't been roasting on a shelf somewhere. Okay. But but uh, beyond that, no. It's I mean it's it's uh, it's it's not meant to uh, to endure in any way. Fascinating. So. Clearly, you're well versed in the topic of wine. I mean, your your biography certainly uh, gives that proper impression of you. But how did you even get into wine? Because I mean, you were at the San Francisco Chronicle for a long time and heading up the wine uh, discussion there. But how did you sort of, you know, develop this interest in wine? How did I have the throne handed? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I wish I had a more interesting story, but I just, uh, it was a very European upbringing in wine, uh, even though we were in New York. Um, my father was trained as a chef and had kind of a gourmet foods and catering business for a time. And so growing up, it was just always there. Uh, I think in the in the book, I say it was, it was more or less osmotic. It just, mm-hmm. you know, it, you're surrounded by it. You don't think about learning about it, kind of like you don't think about learning about baseball. Uh, although I spent more time sitting down trying to figure out how to learn about baseball in this very <laughs> studious way, which wasn't very successful. Uh, but uh, so I, I didn't really think about it, completely forgot about it and went off to school, became a journalist, did all sorts of other journalism, uh, and then started to kind of wind my way back into it. Um, around 2000 and suddenly realized that I was trying to sneak wine into all of my stories and went to my editor, this was at NBC at the time, uh, and said, you know, I should, you know, what about doing a wine column? Uh, and he he bought it and... Kept, you just need that one person to le- to le- to open that door for you. Sometimes. Yeah. Well, this was you know this was this was one of those things. It was like, well, you know, if you want to do it in your free time, and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> on top of everything what else are, you're it's doing, like the, the early days of digital journalism. Yeah, if you want to give us more content, sure. Right. Uh, but we're not going to pay you anymore. Yeah, exactly. I guess that nothing has actually <laughs> changed in that. But um, but you know, it worked, and then uh, and then a few years few few years later, uh, the Chronicle uh, literally called me. And, uh, and, you know, sort of made my way, made my way out and, and yeah, and ended up in this, in this really sort of weird unicorn job. (laughs) And what's your connection to France? Because you've obviously spent a lot of time here. I know you have a place here as well. So we do, um, uh, you know, I don't want to say it's tenuous. Um, I mean, there's a small part of the family that is French, but um, but much of the family is actually German. Uh, but it was, I mean, it was something that my father um, was very taken by, again, in that era of, you know, that, that first great American fascination with France. Um, and he did it, you know, he managed to, to do it professionally. And so uh, it was... It was there uh, and, you know, studied French from a relatively early age and spent some time here uh, in, during the summers. Um, and then, you know, if you, if you are interested in wine, ultimately all roads lead back. Right. The mothership. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and in Paris right now, we're seeing um, a, quite a big movement. Um, and that's uh, one that I explored in the book that's that of natural wine. Um, there's no hard and fast definition of what qualifies a wine as natural and has obviously become kind of a di- di- divisive topic. Um, 
so it's either it almost looks like a, a very niche subset of the wine world um, to outsiders, though, it's often lumped together with organic wines and confused with biodynamic wines. So can you break it down for us? What what should people know about it? And I know that, you know, like all things, How not all of them are created <laughs> equal. I know we have yeah. to do this in like a like a you know, give me the elevator pitch <laughs> yeah, for exactly. the natural wines. Yeah. Uh, so. I mean, natural wine is a little bit complicated, mostly because there's no real definition, and it is it is a little bit sui generis in that it's kind of, you know, the wine is natural because the winemaker or the caviste decides that it's natural. Uh, and in a broad sense, I guess you would say that it generally doesn't have things added to it, which means no acidity added, uh, no enzymes, no yeasts. Uh, the question of sulfur is a complicated one, but... Uh, I will not in any way say no sulfur because you find that everyone but kind of the very, very fringe does believe in at, at some point often using some sulfur dioxide in the process as a preservative. Um, and that's that that will that, that's that's your eight hour podcast. Um, we'll <laughs> leave that for another time. Marathon. Uh, but but uh, so so that is this thing. And it's become I think it's become not just in Paris, but all over. It's become very much. Uh, a la mode because it's um, it's different. The wines have this sort of rebelliousness to them. In the French context, a lot of them um, have either lost or have left uh, voluntarily the appellation, uh, and so there's this notion that they're um, that they're uh, uh, they exist in this different universe than traditional wine. I. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because the uh, the 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 definition and the the uh, the universe of what natural wine is has changed a little bit. Um, but it is this thing that people think about in terms of sort of um, what the, the word I tend to prefer is minimalist. Mm -hmm. uh, in that they you know people don't want a lot of winemaking in their wine. Um, Do you think it's part of that like widespread interest in well being as well? This idea of like natural preservatives and does that come into it at all it could be but if it is i would say it's a little misguided yeah uh, in that uh you know there's there are things that are perfectly good to not see in your wine uh and the other part of it which which i'll get to in a sec which is the actual viticulture the farming um is a really important question but this notion that you're going to have healthier wine is the word natural sort of It's a little suggests. tricky only in that, I mean, look, it, it's wine, it is the stuff of life, but it is still, you know, it is still an alcoholic beverage and, right. you know, you drink it because it's delicious and you like it and it pervades a sense of well-being and some potentially some equilibrium, but it is still, you know, still wine. You still get drunk on it. Do you, is it true that you have less of a hangover though? Not really. Okay. I mean, I... I that is I, debunked. I, I think, <laughs> I, I, think I, I think there is tons of anecdotal evidence and almost zero actual evidence to demonstrate it. I think there are things that people react to in small ways, but almost always it has been anecdotal. And the problem with that is one of the, the creation myths of natural wine goes back to this notion of winemakers wanting to not have a hangover and so they didn't put sulfur in and then they didn't. And it was this, you know, this this slightly, this, you know, the, the immaculate conception of natural wine uh, that, that, that has perpetuated itself. Uh, I think there are people who like that it's a little lighter and, and maybe there are things that they react to less, but I think that uh, there's no 
clear evidence. Um, just to finish, because you had asked about organic and biodynamic, mm. those those are those are rather more specific things in that they directly go to the farming. Organic is organic. It's as it would be for anything else, um, and it goes to um, specifically no synthetics uh, used in the in the farming process. Uh, biodynamic is that plus. Um, Going a little bit farther, and the definition the definition there is a little more complicated because there's there's certified biodynamic in which you have to meet a certain set of standards. You have to use some um, some homeopathic preparations, uh, and then there's a lot of people who do who who use elements of biodynamics, which could be the preparations. It could also be using lunar cycles. Uh, it could be uh, a lot of things that you know that 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 go beyond simply non synthetics into dealing with kind of the the integrity of the farming and the way that you are working. Like I said, with lunar cycles, with solar cycles, with uh, soil tilth, all sorts of things. Okay, it's pretty complicated. To, to the person who already knows, you know, little about wine, that's a that's a lot to yeah. take in. Well, you and see to understand. where you see where the natural wine label is useful because all you have to say, yeah, well, this is this wine is natural, and that's all the people kind yeah. of. But unfortunately, need. it's dangerous too because there's a lot of inconsistency in natural wine, and so then they're like, well, this doesn't taste like the last time I I had it, and and that's sort of the point. But yeah, and there's, I mean, it's it's hard because there are there are people who who call themselves natural winemakers do extraordinary work. And there's a lot of people who, who call themselves natural winemakers who have kind of stumbled into it and don't necessarily understand the extreme attention to detail that's required to really make wine um, in that in that way. And especially if you don't want to use sulfur uh, in your wine at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see even the people, again, who are sort of at the, at the creation um, didn't generally say we're not using this in any way. They would say, you know, there are times when it's appropriate for us to not use it in the wine. Uh, it's also frankly different, to be fair, to, to drink these wines, to drink French natural wines in Paris and to drink them in New York or to drink them in Tokyo. And so what may taste great here may be more um, <laughs> compromised Interesting. And when, you, when you ship it, you know, six okay. or 8,000 kilometers. Right. One of the things you uh, challenge in your new book, the French... Uh, the, no, that's the next that's one. The next Sorry, one. getting jumping ahead. The new wine rules is the elitism that tends to go along with being interested or passionate about wine. And um, I have to admit that I've long felt uncomfortable even talking about it or in, you know, in, in social gatherings because I felt like I hadn't mastered the language of being able to discuss it even casually. Um, what I thought was maybe my own self-consciousness m- might actually be something outside of me, which is what you seem to suggest in the book, which is that no, wine writers and fanatics do tend to be a bit snobbish. Um, what's changed for you in the way you perceive uh, and write about wine? And and how might people be able to get into it and, and feel like they can learn about it without being intimidated? I think I think the thing that that, that I saw, which is which in some way has been around forever. There's always been wine snobs, but I think you see it right now in a very particular way is there's a lot of people who are getting very seriously into wine much younger. And they uh, there's a lot more opportunities for, for these sort of formal learning oper- uh, moments. Uh, if you want to be a sommelier or train as a sommelier, you can do that. If you want to be a quote unquote wine educator, there's, there's a professionalization in some ways of, uh, of the wine industry, and so you see, 
you see that that there was always kind of a middle-aged white man clubbiness to wine, but now there's this clubbiness that sort of shifted its demographic a little bit. It's still mostly dudes, but uh, <laughs> but they're younger. They're still pretty white, um, but uh, but it's uh, there's this this patois that kind of like comes up around it, and and there's this notion of well, we're talking about this very fancy thing, so let's let's use slang, and then let's you know, which is exclusionary in its own way, and. Uh, and then let's use these very complicated tasting terms. And, you know, I, maybe it's simply that I've now been exposed to all of these terms long enough that they don't scare me anymore. Mm-hmm. But I think there's – everyone likes to be confident in what they know. And for a long time, I think there's this inherent insecurity surrounding wine and probably surrounding all all things culinary and maybe all things that – if you know something, you kind of want to lord it over other people. And wine is an easy thing <laughs> to do that with because once you're able to start talking about, you know, uh, the the resolution of tannins and balanced acidity and whether there's volatile and things, then you have this you have this language that that is by definition exclusionary. And you can you know you have your you have your kind of secret code that you can talk to other wine nerds with, but uh, <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't actually necessarily help reflect out into the broader world. And so what what I would see a lot, and I certainly participated in this long enough, was that you know, you, 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 you sort of down translate and you end up talking probably a little bit over simplistically. And so wine remains this mysterious thing because you're either talking in this complete kind of jargon uh, that excludes almost everyone or you're talking in this way that is like wine for kindergartners. And but you've just, str- you know, struck a really good balance in the new book. I mean, honestly, I, I was I reading so. it and I felt it's- like it didn't feel like you were talking to you know, complete newbies, but it also felt like you communicated that you know what you're talking about and also know how to distill it. Yeah, it felt accessible, definitely. That's, it's definitely not a wine for dummies, but it's no. like a... We were we were happy to not make it a wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but there, there are pictures, you know, we uh, it still needed to be a little fun. Uh, no, I mean, there's... The thing is that, that I think wine becomes complicated because people see it as this... Uh, as this this fetishistic item, uh, my 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 permanent metaphor for this is always the movie High Fidelity, uh, which you know same same thing with vinyl. Like you you have your things you love, the more obscure the better, and you you have your way of excluding the rest of the world so you can live in your little sphere of cool. Uh, and but when you stop and you step back a little bit with wine, you think about it. Yes, I mean the culture is extraordinary. There's all of this really interesting stuff. Terroir is a legitimate thing, but. We're talking about fermented grape juice. And so what that means is, you know, when you think about things like, let's say, malolactic conversion or malolactic fermentation, which sounds, uh, it's one of these sort of, you know, quintessential complicated terms. uh, And you step back and you're like, okay, so wine is grape juice. It has a bunch of different acids in it. Some of that is malic acid, which is what you have in apples. Malic acid in the presence of the right bacteria converts to lactic acid, which is what you have in dairy products. And that's what mal- that's what malolactic is, is when the sharp apple acid turns into the, like, smoother, creamier acid that you, like, get in yogurt. And that's that's all it is. And it's – I mean, there's – there's you can go down a huge chem- chemistry rabbit hole. But, like, ultimately, most of the things that people talk about, if they're talking about racking barrels, which literally means, like, moving wine from one barrel to another, <laughs> there's this this thing that, you know, again, like, there's this, this whole sort of um, – 
you know, insider's code that everyone feels really cool for knowing. But ultimately, like, you you step back, and the more I've spent time in these kind of rudimentary cellars um, in, in France versus in the U.S. where everything is very polished and a little more high-tech, um, you, you see, like, this is really not complicated stuff. It's literally fermentation. If you, if you, you know, if you've ever made pickles, if you've ever made, like, kimchi or sauerkraut or anything, you more or less have the concept of most of what goes on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to be able to, to think about the diversity that's there and to think about the specifics of the flavors and all of this. But like in the end, it's, it's a food stuff that's just not that complex. Right. It's just very diverse. Maybe that's the problem. It's hugely diverse. Yeah. Well, not the problem, the thing that's probably exciting. The opportunity. <laughs> yeah, the, the opportunity. opportunity. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, so the book breaks down 50 rules. Is that right? Is it 50? Uh, 89. 89. I am so off the mark. That's okay. 89 is an interesting number, though. Yeah, why 89? You just couldn't get to 90. Uh, <laughs> we we originally started with having 101, and we ended up with me stretching to a bunch of rules that were kind of weak. And so we just – we cut it, and that meant we got to save a few pages, and we got to put some more pictures in from Maria Hergetta, who's our amazing illustrator. And it was sort of like, you know, let's – kind of like with Eater in the 38, like let's let's just pick a random That's number true. and go with it. Well, uh, if you had to whittle it down to three essential wine rules, new wine rules for, for like newcomers to the, to the wine drinking experience. Hmm. I know one of them, which I'll save for last. Uh, I'm thinking about the other two. Uh, I mean, the one that if I, if I could literally, this would be the only thing that I could communicate to people is like throw out your winged corkscrews. <laughs> I love how this gets you riled up yeah. too. Well, it's why it's on. It's why it's on the book cover. Is is right. like you know, it's like the the waiter's friend, which is the the double hinged uh, corkscrew that's that's not winged, but is sort of like the thing you see people use in restaurants. Uh, is super simple. It's the cheapest thing ever, um, and it works so much better. It is it is physics at its finest. Um, that would be one. Uh, I think uh, one the, the the next one, and there's a set of rules around this, but really to to kind of throw out all of the things you think about pairing wine with food, because most of them come from this very specific Western European tradition that doesn't really apply to modern cooking. Mm-hmm. And the third, and this really it is my favorite rule, and it's why we made it the first rule in the book, uh, thus rule number one, uh, <laughs> which is drink the rainbow, uh, which sounds a little esoteric, but just means that you know this 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 old taxonomy of white wine, red wine, maybe a little rosé, like some of that's natural, but some of it's just as you said, diversity, Alice, like it's, there's, there's, there's so many shades of colors of wine. There's so many flavors. There's so much, there's so much nuance now in between the old buckets that you sort of have to stop thinking about it as buckets and thinking about it as a gradient, as a continuum. Hmm. Uh, And I think that that's the really, the best way to think about wine today. So for, All sorts of other recommendations and rules. You're going to need to pick up a copy of the new wine rules, which is in bookstores everywhere. Probably some specialty shops, definitely available online. Uh, Makes a great gift. It's nicely sized. It's it's perfect. Fits in uh, a stocking, and it and it will apply to a lot of different people who you're trying to to give gifts to, which I think is extremely helpful. Uh, We didn't get to some of the other things we wanted to talk to you about, uh, including your favorite wine bars in Paris. So we're going to have some extra stuff uh, up here on uh, my website, uh, lostincheeseland.com, where you can also stream this episode uh, if you want to listen to it again. 
and all of our other episodes. And until the next episode, do find John on Twitter. John, what's your handle? It's John Bonet. J-J-B-O-N-N-E. Okay, perfect. Very easy. You can ask him questions or not, but he's there. <laughs> and you can catch us at uh, New Paris Podcast, all one word, on Twitter. A bientôt. Thanks, John. Thanks, Thank you John. So much.